0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: Welcome to Critics at Large, a podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Vincent Cunningham.
0: I'm Alex
2: Schwartz. And I'm Nomi Fry. Hello, critics. Hello, (laughs) hello,
3: critics. (laughs) Hello, critics.
2: Critics, hello. Each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. Today is a kind of special episode for us, I think, because we are going to spend this entire episode talking about criticism. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we're, go- we're going meta. <laughs> we're going meta, you Sorry. guys. Um, we're going to pull back the curtain a little bit, just a smidge. And, uh, um, you know, I-, I think this is a topic that feels kind of urgent right now in a variety of ways. We've been hearing a lot about how criticism is a dying art form. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I hope it's not a (laughs) dying—I hope that's not the case. But there is kind of a rampant disinvestment in arts journalism, right? Fewer and fewer jobs
3: and and so on. Yeah, I think, you know, we don't want to get defensive about who we are and what we do. But criticism is under attack. Yes. We hear all the time, as Nomi said, about the death of criticism. There is also, I would argue— Um, The kind of uh, a critical populism going on, which can definitely be a force for good, but it can also be a force for chaos. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I think there is a difference between being a critic as a – what's the word I'm looking for? Vocation. A calling. Yes, a calling. Like, a yeah, a calling, a sense of purpose and and Mm -hmm. profession Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, versus a kind of weighing in thumbs up or thumbs down.
1: Right. That's right. And for many reasons – Criticism is often misapplied and thought of as that up and down or like a kind of hating or a, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a way of mm-hmm. some extreme uh, aesthetic snob being like, I, Good, I, I don't, yeah, yeah, I want to take away your Marvel movie or whatever, I want right. like to rip the popcorn out of your, <laughs> <laughs> out of your hands. What you if know? you suddenly ripped
2: the what popcorn? What if I was just like,
1: oh. <laughs> everywhere, I, went. I love popcorn, by the way. <laughs> um, so I think that this 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 thought of us as these sort of like, permanent curmudgeons yes as opposed to what we are which is people who love fun want experience to be as full of itself as possible right yeah no um,
2: i mean i remember buying popcorn to see schindler's list oh my
3: god <laughs> <laughs> i'm fun one, i'm, I'm just gonna many say possible right now I think titles for your yeah. tell-all
1: but that's one of them
3: i think that's a neutral that's <laughs>
2: relating to criticism that's just a pure neutral yeah Okay, but more <laughs> a bit more
3: seriously, what do you what do you guys want this episode to do? Well, to me, criticism is the art of thinking seriously about something in public. And so when I say that this that we're going meta, I want us to do that about criticism. I want us to okay. think deeply about what the art of criticism is and does when it's at its best mm-hmm. in public. Mm.
1: Um, and also, I, I mean, the other thing that our show is about is about how much enjoyment you can get out of art. And I think that criticism is underutilized as an art form, that it is an art yeah. form out of which you can derive entertainment. Yeah. Not just subsidiary absolutely. from the art that it discusses, but it is a, a great way to enjoy yourself. And so if we can absolutely recommend some to our listeners, that would yeah. be an add to the deposit of their possible enjoyments. Yeah, this great. is
2: not this is not homework. Right, yeah. have fun with it, fun. <laughs> so you guys, that's our show today uh criticism and why it matters so I'm just curious to to start with um. You know how you guys answer the question of what criticism is. What what do you think is the work of a critic today?
1: Um, maybe I can answer that by starting with what I think. Who I think a critic is. Okay. Which is that is someone who I'm going to keep using this word because it is it is who I am. Loves. Um, yes. Experience. I think it's okay. something. It is a it is a disposition that comes even before attention to art it's someone that looks at any phenomenon i could look around the room that we're in and yeah. locate any of them yeah and wants to extend their life by uh by Engaging paying attention it. yeah by uh-huh. analysis by mm-hmm. i want to juice this aspect of experience for all that it's worth right yeah someone who is like in one way, and not to be morbid, but like battling death by saying I could extend this moment and this one and this one and this one by way of attention. Yeah. And so the the best way to practice that disposition happens yeah. to be on art. Yeah. And therefore, um, uses their taste, uses their standards, uses their whole apparatus of judgment, um, really to express a kind of joy in like being alive at the same time as the thing.
2: Yeah. No, I love that. That's that's absolutely beautiful. And it also strikes me just as you're talking the question of attention. You know, we talk so much about the 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 crisis in attention mm-hmm. that we're all experiencing now. And so arguably the work of criticism is a kind of like training of one's attention in a concerted way. Yeah, it's harder just, and harder to do. It's harder and harder to do. So, so that's another thing that, uh, you know, we can, we can think about a little bit today. What, what about
3: you, Alex? Well, I just want to say that I loved everything Vincent just said. Mm. And it really made me light up from within like <laughs> a beautiful rice paper lantern. I did, I did feel
2: tears, you know, threatening once again here in the studio <laughs> to come to my eyes. Well,
3: well, I let's lo- face it. I love it because for me, what is criticism for me? I said before, I think that it's the art of thinking deeply about something in public, and I think that's true. Mm. Um, but that may even be like the second or third step of what it mm-hmm. is, because first, it's about seeing and taking in and observing. You know, I think when if i if I want to just think back to my own origins as a young, as a budding please, critic, please. which, frankly, were really early, really, really early. I, I, I found um Say say more. You remember well, from. Going through the archives, going through the Schwartzian archives. You lying know, in your crib. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if so my parents were uh, had were boxing up my room recently. And I found a self-published newspaper that I had written, I guess, on like a rainy afternoon when I was maybe nine.
2: Oh, my God. Um, I had the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I
3: I wrote all these different articles and put my friends' names on them. But it was really like I was the whole ghostwriter. And right there in the midst of it is a review of um, the Diary of Anne Frank, the play, which I had just seen with a young Natalie Portman on Broadway. Oh, I was blown away. Wow. And... That sense of I've seen something and I want to convey what the experience of seeing it was like. And I also – and this is, I think, something very important about what being a critic is when you – because you have to obviously have a confidence in your own judgments. And the way that often that confidence comes to me is a sense that there's something that isn't operating on the surface, but I think I can see what it is. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell people what that thing is. And I want to figure it out for myself.
2: No, I think it's true. I mean – For me, I also, at around age 9 or 10, wrote these, like, little magazines with one of my best friends. Really? And I did write reviews, but mine were spoof reviews. (laughs) I made up TV shows (laughs) and movies.
1: This doesn't surprise me at all. And I
2: reviewed them in using language that I read, sort of like knowingly spoofing the cliches yeah, of, the kind idiom of like down. mass media criticism. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Vincent? Do you have any <laughs> early experiences of of being a critic, a young um, critic?
1: It's so funny. Um I have I have two sort of like almost sensory moments that I think contribute to my I guess ability to do this. I don't know if it's like sort of my desire or whatever, but certainly yeah, yeah. my ability to do it. One was very young my father was an artist, he was a, a, a church musician. But I remember being in our house, listening to my father play and realizing, I, like, I remember the moment that I realized that there was a, a such thing as harmony. Yeah. Like that there, were, there was like this whole like sort of surface of a sound that was the song, but like, oh wow, it's working vertically in this way too. Like mm. if you pay attention, you can hear the different notes and like, but you have to listen really closely. And I remember oh, like wow. being on the floor of our apartment and just like sort of listening and being like, wow, I understand why I, I like, feel this, like, this hum, this, like, that something's happening and I can, like, hum along, but there's another kind of depth that only appears out of listening, right? And the other thing also connected to our life as a family was sitting in church and being, like, (laughs) and this is, again, the presumption, um, (laughs) listening to preachers and being, like, "Ah, you kind of missed it. Like, uh, Uh you should have said that instead of, like, you had a good line here and there was, like, a next moment and, like, my first actual acts of criticism were to myself about oratory.
3: Oh, I love that. So you were both a theater critic and a literary critic in that moment. That's right. Mm. That's yeah. True. We all have writers too, right? Who inspire us.
2: And one of the reasons we started talking about doing this episode in the first place is that um, our colleague at the magazine, Joan Acachella, one of the great critics of The New Yorker, passed away um, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And that got us thinking, you know, about what makes a great critic. And Alex, I know you in particular wanted to talk today about Joan and her work. Why, why is that?
3: I love the work of Joan Acachella. I just love it. Um, I wrote about her after she died for the magazine. And one thing I said was that a new piece by Joan was a reason to cancel plans. And that was not hyperbole. um, Why did I? Why do I love her writing? Well, one reason is that criticism, that the critic's job is to write for the reader, um, which I know sounds obvious, but I don't think it is. And for me, Joan was able to bring in the reader better than anyone else to all kinds of topics, high, lowbrow, everything in between. She was totally great about that. So I want to read you. Can I just give you an example of what I'm talking about? Yes, please, please, please do. All right, let me pull it up. So... One of her great subjects as a dance critic was Mikhail Baryshnikov. And she has a profile that she wrote of him for this, wrote about him for this magazine. And yes, she talks about the steps and of course she'll talk about, you know, plies, etc. But at the end of the piece, there is a description of a particularly extraordinary performance that he gives. And she says, He rose like a piston. He landed like a Mm -hmm. lark. He took off like Jerry Lee Lewis he finished like Jane Austen. <laughs> That's true. From ledge to ledge of the dance, he leapt, sure-footed, unmindful, a man in love. The audience knew what they were seeing. The air in the theater thickened almost visibly. By that time, we actually wanted him to stop so that we could figure out what had happened to us. So I love that. I love that she's bringing in, I mean, look what she's doing. She's talking about Jerry Lee Lewis, rock and roll. She's talking about Jane Austen, Regency era novelist. Mm-hmm. She's talking about Piston's mechanics. She's talking about Lark, the natural world. And she's brought in kind of every metaphor to describe something that is defying all of them, that's making you feel the ambition and just the sheer power of what's happening. And then she says the simplest thing possible, which is we were trying to figure out what was going on. And that's (laughs) like, if you want to talk about what the job of the critic is, that's the job. And I absolutely love that. And it's just a beautiful passage. Uh, You know, the other thing I just love about Joan's writing, and and this has already come up a few times in this conversation already, is how funny she was. Mm. Like... I think funny and humor, funniness and humor are important in criticism because if you don't have those qualities at all, then I don't really trust you can enjoy something. And if you can't enjoy something, I don't really want to know what you think about anything, like good or bad, basically. Well, you know,
1: it's so true. And I've often thought of the closest sort of popular medium to criticism to be Certain kinds of public speech, one of which would be stand-up comedy, because it, like classically, what this comic does is point to something that we all understand Mm -hmm. and then pull out of it something that we never would have thought. What's up? (laughs) (laughs) exactly Seinfeld is like the right right observational comedy yeah i'm looking at this thing and i'm going to tell you something else about it and i think it's so true that as a form of literature right if you want to enjoy this form of literature it's exactly what you mentioned alex which is that like um it is the art form of the metaphor and the simile it is that is its most ardent desire is to like put something next to something else and say isn't this a lot like this you know and look at those things together doesn't that give you a whole new world of things to think about.
2: Can we talk for a couple minutes maybe about um Jones the the final piece of hers that was published? In the magazine, this was in February of 2023, it was a book review about the wife of Bath, the, the Chaucer's Canterbury Tales character, this sort of body woman, f- married five times, very uh, sexual and confident and, um, and funny. And I just maybe want to open with uh, reading uh, a couple of sentences from the, the beginning Ooh, Yes, of the I wa- piece. I want to know what
3: struck your fancy.
2: Yeah, so I just, I mean, just to start off right at the beginning. Okay, listen to this lead. There are a few things in our culture that almost no one dislikes. Dolly Parton, fried rice, dot, dot, dot. I can think of something else, too. (laughs) For this item, the constituency is smaller. You probably have to go to college to want to vote on it, but really it or she should be included. The wife of Bath from Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Um, You know, fried rice and Dolly Parton, Uh, you know, is this a regular lead to discussing Chaucer? Those are two such great examples. Also, this
3: is a sex joke. Like I I can think of something else too. Yes. Yes.
1: At first, I I had to read those two sentences. Yeah. I was like, okay, she's talking about the wife of Bath, but she's talking about something. Yeah. Let's be one
3: hundred percent clear. This is a sex joke, and she's about to write about one one of the raunchiest characters in all of literature, the wife of Bath, who's talking about how much she loves sex and you know how all she you know basically wore all of her husbands out to the point of death with her love of sex and how she married another younger husband disastrously because again he had beautiful legs, shapely shapely legs. Yeah. So Joan is is she's given it to you right at the start. yeah and yeah you gotta love it you gotta love
1: it and importantly though i think that this whole thing right and the same thing goes for um the pistons uh, Mm -hmm. of before Mm
0: -hmm. is that
1: it so clearly tells you what if you're looking for a, a lesson in criticism or what's good about it um it's saying here's this thing that by our lights is ancient. Yeah. And here's fried rice and Dolly Parton. No, totally. And saying, like, it's a kind of liaison. Right. Uh,
2: it's a liaison, right? The, the, the critic here is a liaison between a thing that many people might think is elevated or maybe not for them or maybe boring or maybe, oh, yeah, we read it and like right. freshman year lit and, you know, whatever. You know, I'll just fess up and say that, you know, Chaucer, medieval literature was never, even when I was in grad school for English. You know, never my thing. I could not be less interested. (laughs) Okay, and so when take that Chaucer, (laughs) yeah,
3: and so you're rolling in your grave now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And so when we agreed um, amongst ourselves that we would discuss uh, Joan's final piece for the magazine, and it happened to be, you know, about Chaucer, I was like, but you know, once I started reading, I was like, oh, this is this is just great she's making it and you know and, and not to say she's making it relatable like in a dumbed down way you know which is there's nothing worse than that I'm sort of like how do you do fellow kids you know try, mm-hmm. trying to be like <laughs> you know what I mean um, this is not Chaucer for dummies you know just to, just to make clear uh, but it does make it alive it makes it alive to the reader After the break, we're going to be talking a lot more about the critics who've shaped the field and our own work. It's Critics on Critics. (laughs) We'll be right back.
1: I
3: love that.
0: (laughs) I'm David Remnick, host of The New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Our negative thoughts can stick with us, so we all have something to get off our chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com critics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, critics.
2: So uh, we discussed in advance um, that we would kind of share works of criticism that have been important to us, important to our development as critics, important to how we think about the work of writing about art. And I decided to select uh, a piece from 1917 by the Russian formalist Viktor Shklovsky called Art is Technique. And... This is not I didn't select this so much for the style in which it was written, but more for how deeply it influenced me in looking at art, I guess, or thinking about art or thinking how to write.
1: When did about you first art. encounter it?
2: Um I encountered it, I believe I was still an undergrad. And then I think I re-encountered it in grad school. Um but to me, you know, so, so, so Shklovsky in this piece uh, defined the concept of defamiliarization as the role of art, right? Um, what he called um, making the stone stony, right? Where the way we look at life, we, we're numb to the world mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, right? We, we look at things, but we don't really see them. We don't really observe them closely. We don't really pay attention, and the role of art, Pershklovsky, is to remind us of the world and the ways in which it's worth it to look at the world, mm-hmm. right? It kind of reawakens us to what's around us. And when I think about criticism and about the work that criticism does, I think it needs to notice that in art, but I think... It also needs to do that in criticism, right? right? Remind people that things aren't just like transparent and should be taken for granted and are just around us, but that in fact, these things matter, you know? Mm-hmm. How about you? Um, yeah. Is there a writer whose work helped shape the way you approach criticism?
1: Yeah, someone who is like, I don't know. I can't even say it strongly enough, a hero, a model, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a kind mm-hmm. of companion in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I have met him a couple of times and I still feel more like his friend when I read him than I do when I ever speak with him mm-hmm. um, is Daryl Pinckney,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: who writes mainly for the New York Review of Books. Um, he has written some novels that I really love. Uh, High Cotton is the name of his first novel. The second one is called uh, Black Deutschland. Um, but his criticism is for me... Uh, indicative of so much of what we talked about. Because it's, it, it really is the dispatch of someone who is always talking about our often, um, often literature, and often you might call it the field of African-American literature is where you can find him at his most passionate. But for him, passionate is, again, the coolness of conversation. Yeah, It really is a kind of talk, a kind of chatter. Um, I'll read you a, a paragraph. Um, and I just like, I could have gone, I've, I love so many pieces, but it really... His, his work is more of a tapestry of all the pieces together. And just like a flow of conversation. Um, this one is about uh, a short story collection called Loverman by a, a writer called Austin Anderson. But what Daryl wants to talk about here, what Daryl Pinckney wants to talk about here is um, black talk or dialect in speech. Mm. That's what he like kind of, that's the thing he cares most about about this 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 book. So he starts the he starts off like this again. Loverman Austin Anderson, you will not hear any of that shit in this first paragraph. <laughs> yeah. um, James Weldon Johnson was critical of dialect because it only had two stops: pathos and humor. Mark Twain may have listened to how the black people around him spoke, and the case has been made passionately that he gave his black characters credit for thinking at a time when dialect was used mostly to confirm the inferiority of black people, but. Even if not racist, dialect is still racialized speech It contains the problem of having to overcome the assumption that racial distinctions will be demeaning for black people. So already a kind of like arguing with himself, it's like, well, Twain was good with dialogue, but you can't deny that dialogue was usually used for this bad purpose. And oh, yeah, I'm just talking about James Weldon Johnson and Mark Twain and already introducing to you something that I just care about, which is like, what does it mean to speak in dialect in literature and it just sounds like you're in the presence of somebody who cares about this and the way that he does it and this is why i talk about this kind of like aspect of friendship uh, that you can sometimes get off a critic i think in in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else Mm, um i remember here's a story one night i'll never forget this it was like 2021 and like around that time like everybody else i was like a little bit more anxious than i'd ever been and i was like in the middle of the night having these like i don't know maybe anxiety attacks i don't know like just waking up and who feeling can, who can tell who can tell <laughs> feeling like totally talk about defamiliarization yeah. just feeling like yeah. lost at sea and um in the middle of the night i get up like trying not to wake up my wife and i go into the living room and i'm like losing it and by instinct i just picked up a copy of um, Daryl Pinkney's essay collection, Busted in New York, and just opened it up and started reading the paragraphs, just like so I could hear a human voice. It cured me. <laughs> I, and I'm so, I'm still so grateful for that moment uh, because it's just a person who's just like me, who cares about the kind of stuff that I care about, um, and wants, and, and these paragraphs, wants to surround me in this mode of thought. Mm -hmm. wants to change the direction I'm going in and put me on a boat with him and just like push it off to sea very gently. Um, So I'm... Daryl Pickney, if you ever listen to this, you probably don't. I don't know. Thank you.
3: Criticism saves lives. It does. Let's just let everyone know that criticism (laughs) saves lives. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense because, well, precisely because criticism at its ideal is sense making that is right. the point it is about making sense mm-hmm. yeah. so when you're unmoored and you're totally lost and you're waking up and you don't know where you are you got to be reoriented
1: to okay. sense yeah. hold it back in
2: now that everyone's a critic why does criticism matter Critics at Large from The New Yorker will be back in a minute.
1: Hello there, radio listeners. It's Luke Burbank, host of Live Wire. Each week, we bring you riveting and unexpected conversations with the people behind some of the most interesting entertainment and culture out there today— Plus, we're going to introduce you to great music and outrageously funny comedy. And you get to hang with me and our announcer, Elena Passarello, as we talk about the best news of the week. So please, don't miss
3: LiveWire.
2: So, you guys, we we talked about how much we love criticism. We talked about critics we love, um, but now we also want to discuss the sort of elephant in the room, so to speak. Uh, is criticism in crisis? Is criticism dying? What's 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 going on?
1: I think that if you if you look at criticism, uh, you know, just like as a whatever it, its appearance in a certain kind of market. Yeah, there's no question that it is endangered right like yeah. with the absolute crisis that we're having in terms of just local news
2: mm-hmm.
1: right one place that criticism often lives is in local news because it's saying here's what's happening in your town sure and that sort of basic like review-based critical culture mm-hmm. um, if you just look at it across the country
2: in a daily paper and yeah
1: it is it is uh very much endangered and then if you look at the, the world of sort of more major newspapers, which, as we, if you look around at our world, you know, layoff after layoff seems to be the rhythm of um, much of the media landscape in this country, even on the sort of the higher, more national levels. Yeah. Um, a lot of what we see when we see layoffs and then people not being replaced often yes. happens in the arts pages. Yeah. So that is, that is, a, it, I think it is fair to call it a, a, a kind of crisis what we the, the what we do which is you know do criticism among other things as a way of living and you know yeah. it 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 feeds our families and stuff like that mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. it was always a privileged thing to do Definitely. in a certain way and i think it more and more is that it's a more rare thing um to, to to have to have as a, a facet of your life
2: yeah you you brought to our attention um this uh piece by Jason Zinneman, who writes he's a critic at large for for The Times and he mostly writes about comedy, but he wrote about how the theater critic for the Washington Post peter marks uh recently took a buyout, and now the Washington Post will no longer have theater criticism That's right. right. And he was using it as a kind of example of what is happening more generally in in arts criticism.
3: There's something very specific about theater criticism that that I think we should say, which is that, um, you know, because one thing going on, like, Vincent, I agree with you. I think criticism is definitely in crisis. It's one of these crises that's been... uh, slow rolling over a long period of time. So we've been used to hearing about it for at this point many, many years, but the trends are clear. And one reason for this, one reason for the decline in these pages, of course, is that a lot more people are practicing practicing criticism than ever. They're just doing it online or on Twitter or on social media or on blogs or whatever. Like you don't have to be a professional critic right. to get your opinion out. And so the thing I want to say specifically about theater is that's a lot harder with theater to do that than it is with for instance a TV Netflix yeah shows. you just yeah. for TV That's for right. books whatever you just you just need to like go to the library or um turn on your television. With theater having done this, I can tell you There's no rush like going in with those press tickets that you didn't have to pay for because otherwise it's prohibitive. It like totally is prohibitive. So when you lose a theater critic, you are losing eyes on work for sure. And you're losing the person who is telling other people about the work. And this was part of Jason Zedman's argument. You're impoverishing the entire ecosystem, the artistic ecosystem that depends on, um, you know, on work being made, on being seen and on being responded to. When you lose that, I I really do think it's like a big um, impoverishment in that way. And the other thing I do want to say, I think professional criticism has become nicer. And I wonder, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. Like a good one might be that I do think there is like a bit more of a compassion or an empathy for the art maker perhaps going on with a Mm -hmm. professional critic where they're like, oh, God. Especially when you consider the market
2: forces that were all sort of like – T- t- you know rocked to and fro by it's it's like everything feels in some way because of the conditions we're all toiling in harder
3: there's a right there's a there's a reason to be more sympathetic to the work perhaps mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know i think that can be good i also think it can be totally corrupting and condescending cuz mm-hmm. like what you're describing nomi mm-hmm. which i totally agree yeah. with, is like one step from condescension where you can be yeah. like, oh, you put on your Ooh, that's play, nice. that's so great, let's yeah. like compliment <laughs> you for that. And like, no, this, yeah. is, this is not, you know, how we should be thinking about it. But I do think there is generally a sense of maybe more um, yeah, just sympathy for the artistic, the difficulty of artistic yeah. experience. Mm-hmm. But I think another reason it's nicer is that, you know, now that we live in this, in the moment of like great populist waves of criticism, mm-hmm. um, there's a different valence to that. Like, one thing that I've been thinking about is we really are in a moment of everyone being a critic and people coming for the critics. Oh, my God, And yes. so with that, you know, like, do you dare to be A.S. Scott going against Marvel and, like, being attacked by a, a million a, fanboys? Yeah, yeah, a bunch of people. Like, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I think that is part of what's going on. Like, we're seeing the weaponization of criticism. I was mm-hmm. very struck by... um This op-ed I read by uh, Maris Kreutzman in the New York Times recently about Goodreads, for instance. Mm -hmm. And there have been a bunch of scandals with Goodreads where people are kind of weaponizing the review mechanism, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like creating false accounts and bombing other writers they're in competition with and and all this stuff like it's brutal out there. And that's we're just getting farther and farther away from what criticism is when you get to stuff like that.
2: Yeah, it's kind of, it goes into vendetta mode, and it's not totally clear ever, or sometimes. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not clear why people would do that even, you know, except the impulse to troll, as we know, in a lot of different facets of our our lives right now is strong. (laughs) Sometimes it's just pure... You know, shit posting or pure, you know, and it's but of course that that has real life effects. And to and to think about that kind of thing, you know, giving something one star and being like, this sucks, you know. And I'm not saying anyone yeah. who's not a professional critic is a dummy who gives one star, and every critic is like a valiant hero who, you know, brings their best self to the table every single time. But, but you know, generally speaking, yeah. I, I think there is a kind of a gap <laughs> between yeah. these two things.
3: I mean, I just want to be very clear that I'm not at all against um, the rise of, like, the reviewing culture more generally. And yeah. I actually think there is something about reviewing culture that can keep professional critics honest. Like, it can kind of give you a bracing sense of critical reality to check in to see how, like, many other people are experiencing the thing. Yeah. And they're, like, brilliant, you know, people are writing brilliant stuff. Like, in no way am I just saying, like, <laughs> leave it to the professionals, everyone. <laughs> no, not at all. But I do think, yeah, there's something um, interesting going on there. Yeah. yeah.
1: But I think, yeah, I, this is, I think, a product of some historical realities that have changed quite a lot just in the last couple of decades, right? So, for example... the Jason Zinneman piece that we were talking about, about theater criticism and um, the unfortunate um, departure from the scene of Peter Marks, who was really an admirable critic. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that Jason talks about, and it it really is one of the sort of third rails of this conversation, is the actual amount of uh, real power, economic power, critics either have or once had. Mm -hmm. So especially like a theater critic, the thing was, you know, especially if you're the critic at the New York Times, this used to be the case, you could close a show or keep it open with your review. Right. The, a day after your review, if it's a total pan, like, the show would start folding, and, and yeah. the opposite, if you gave it a great review, the, the ticket sales would pump up. So, this true power that they had, right, which was, we should say, often abused yeah. There were many critics. I can think of many. I'll name one. John Simon, a, a, a critic who died not long ago, um, a theater critic. I mean, he was just vicious for no reason. And uh, you would read the pieces and wonder, do you even like this art form? You know. So there is a way to, um, number one, just abuse the attention of the reader, but also abuse the power that you have as a critic. Mm-hmm. And and this, this did happen. I think less than is often sort of imputed to us, but it, it did happen. Um, but also just the fact that criticism does on some level operate as publicity. And this is the thing that we always try not to yeah. allow into our work. We try not to allow into our sort of uh, our mindset he- as critics. Yeah. But it it, it it it's just true that if there is there is a thousand words about anything in a big newspaper, then more people know about it, right? Yeah. It's true. Like so something that we write about, it changes minds, it introduces to people or whatever. Sure. And so um besides what we've said about Criticism as a kind of literature, what I believe it is. Mm-hmm. It is also on this other side, this more sort of whatever, dollar It's part and of the ecosystem. Side, it's a part of an ecosystem yeah. that, that creates a culture where people go and see things, care about them, yeah. whatever. And if, so we, you mentioned uh, A.O. Scott, the former film mm-hmm. um, critic at the Times, now more of a sort of critic at large mm-hmm. who writes about books and things. I should admit, uh, A.O. Scott, Tony Scott, friend of mine, love him. Um, he, he had this thing where Samuel L. Jackson, after...
3: Oh, I remember. Yeah, after yeah.
1: Tony wrote this uh, negative review of the Avengers movie, Samuel L. Jackson goes on Twitter and says, hashtag Avengers fans, NY Times critic A.O. Scott, by the way, he talks like the New York Post, NY Times critic A.O. <laughs> Scott needs a new job. Oh Let's help him God. find one, one he can actually do so it's like this weaponization it's like sam jackson fucking knows better because he's great he's got amazing talent i love him but part of the reason he exists is because perceptive critics have 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 shared with us what's good about his work so you get a bad review for a fucking corporate thing yeah it's a corporate yeah
2: it's it's the the sort of bullying trope right? right like the critic is a bully i'm like it's a marvel like relax
1: you're on the side you're that's on, got all the money yes. and all the power it's
2: like it's it's fine i'm an
1: ink-stained wretch just trying to tell people totally you know and yeah. so this
3: well, is, this attitude is, is, yeah. is,
1: is part of the problem
3: it is so interesting how people deal with tough critics um you know i was reading a lot over the weekend about tom shales the washington post tv critic mm-hmm. because he died last week and there were there was a lot of public mourning on Twitter among people who'd been you know who syndicated and so was read really really widely, and I'm reading some negative reviews this guy wrote. Like I'm yeah. reading some mean stuff. And it, <laughs> one thing that the um, like I was just I was just uh, glancing at at uh, Shales's review of the OC a Ooh, show from my, my own from um, my own teen years. Never forget. And it's just scorching. Like the first paragraph, you know, I'm sorry. This piece begins encumbered by a script that is nearly breathtaking in its imbecilic banality. <laughs> <laughs> that's a subordinate clause. We don't even know what he's talking about. The OC makes one long for the cold comforts of a sleazy-minded reality show. So it's like, okay, that's a drive-by on reality shows. Like, yeah. that's just, you know, <laughs> forget it. Like, he's just gone two for the price of one. But what I like about that, what I like about that kind of mean criticism, you know, uh, I'm not someone who loves meanness for the sake of meanness at all, and I don't get my kicks that way. But, you know, one thing I do appreciate about that review of The O.C. is, like, I think Shales was going at what he considered to be really brainless, corporatized entertainment. And kind totally. of, like, you know, he said he's of... Josh Schwartz, the showrunner, who at that point was 26, like, well, he didn't waste any time in selling out. Like, whoo! Um, (laughs) Well, it was a different time. It was a different time, but...
1: (laughs) There's a thing, it was just...
3: uh, Which is why we can sort of of enjoy it Well, that kind of harsh, um, you know, clarity, like, eh, there can be a time and place for it. There there can.
2: Before we leave each other, I guess I want to ask you... um, why does criticism matter, okay? After all we've talked about, you know, the rise of the popular critic, the contraction of, of the field, uh, our own, you know, love of the work, and, and yet, you know, the difficulty in pursuing it. Uh, wh- what do you guys think?
1: I think that criticism matters because of a, a little bit of what I was saying about Jonah Coachella in that first couple of sentences of the, the Wife of Bath piece, which is, um, art enters our lives at moments, in, 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 in contexts, at, at, at spots in history and touches places in us that are either personal or public. Mm. And that encounter, the moment of encounter between Ourselves and the work of art, our, our time and the work of art, whatever, our political happenstance, circumstance, and the work of art um, is itself an aspect of experience. That encounter mm. is an event. And somebody's gotta speak up for that event.
3: That's beautiful. Agree. Cosign, mm-hmm. as it were. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no me.
2: Yeah, it's about engaging with the world and it's about thinking that art is important. It's about also for me personally finding out what I think about something, mm-hmm. you know? It's a process of discovery for me. Criticism is a process of discovery and I hope that this discovery is present for whoever is reading what I'm writing um as well.
1: Here here. Here here.
3: Well, I have two things to say and they also um, lead me back to Joan Acuchella. Um, One thing is she said something that in her just beautiful, simple, direct, blunt style, just put the words to it for me that I thought was super helpful. She said that Balanchine's work not only made me fall in love with ballet in a much more serious way than I ever would have thought about before. It made me think about life differently, about how you should live, what you should care about. And the interviewer says, can you talk a little bit more about that? And she says, yes, but it's hard because we're talking about the most important things in life. Abstract art, the importance of it, imagination, transformation, the energy that that transformation releases. Looking at art can be a whole life where you don't need anything more. And I that is such a beautiful value. Mm-hmm. I think the art of criticism, if you get to do it it's and you want to do it, Glorious, you get to live that life. And then the other thing that I think that I want to say, which is also to me a totally Joan quality, so I'm really just glad to be thinking and, you know, in a critical way about her, is it is about transmission. It is about bringing that to others. Like, I really find that very important, that it's about enabling others to try to see what you see and to give access and make it bigger like i do think criticism is also is often considered a kind of gatekeeping it really also can be the opposite it can be a giving of access um you know like kind of nothing is more important than that and that to me dignifies the whole endeavor amen and now please rate and review us <laughs> <laughs>
2: This has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby, and Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music, and we had engineering help today from Josh Wilcox with mixing by Mike Kutchman. You can find every episode of Critics at Large at newyorker.com slash critics, and you can email us at themail at newyorker.com. We'd love to hear from you. Just make sure to include critics in the subject line. Your note will get to us faster. See you next Thursday.